agriculture has been around since the earliest human societies. Only in recent decades, however, have we thought about culture within an organization, what we commonly refer to as corporate culture. Yet, the more you study corporate culture, the more you realize that no other aspect of organizational life is more pivotal for determining the prospects of the enterprise. Today, we're going to examine the building blocks of organizational culture. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Upsize Your Leadership, the podcast about enhancing your ability to lead wherever you exercise your leadership role. I'm thrilled that you've joined us today. My name is Mike Armour, the Managing Principal of Strategic Leadership Development International, which I founded in Dallas in 2001. You can learn more about me and the comprehensive leadership development services which we offer at leaderperfect.com. There's no such thing as an organization with no corporate culture. Wherever humans form a prolonged association, a culture inevitably emerges. Before long, there's a set way of doing things. Certain things are valued. Others are not. Particular topics and viewpoints are open to discussion. Others are considered inappropriate. One of our responsibilities is to exert our influence to create a culture which is as healthy and as productive as possible. When you learn to do that, you are certain to upsize your leadership. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Corporate culture is one of those things that we've all experienced, but if we are pressed to define it, we might find that a bit challenging. So let's begin today by describing, even defining, what corporate culture is all about. Here's the way that I define it. Corporate culture is the prevailing pattern of personal and interpersonal behavior within an organization. It evolves from the values, beliefs, outlooks, attitudes, and habits which underlie how people generally act, interact, and react to and with one another. As I said in the introduction, all human enterprises quickly gravitate toward a set way of doing things which coalesce to form a group culture. Large organizations usually have corporate subcultures which function within divisions, departments, or long-standing teams. Corporate culture is actually an extension of leadership choices. You see, a corporate culture is inevitable. How it is shaped is determined by leadership. Leaders can do one of two things. They can either purposefully promote a desired culture or they can passively sanction a de facto culture. What I mean by passively sanctioning a de facto culture is that all of us have moved into an organization whose culture was already established, whether through purposeful action on the part of leaders in the past or simply because this is the way that things evolved. 
if I never challenge that culture, if I never try to change it or enhance it or improve it, I am thereby passively sanctioning it. I'm giving it permission to continue as it always has. One of my responsibilities as a leader, therefore, is to determine whether I'm going to be a change agent when it comes to the corporate culture or whether I will be simply a passive participant in that culture. Now, to give you an idea of just how important a culture is, let me cite one simple statistic. Studies from a number of institutions and organizations have shown that something like 60% of mergers and acquisitions fail to attain their projected return on investment because they bring together incompatible cultures. I've had a lot of experience with that myself as a consultant. A typical scenario that I might be involved in is a business that was owned by a family, run by that family for perhaps two or three generations. Then a generation comes along that is no longer interested in either that aspect of the business or in the industry which it targets. They therefore decide to sell the family-owned business to a larger entity. And many times that acquiring entity is a publicly traded company. All of a sudden, what was once a family-like culture has been brought into an organization that has a very bottom-line, efficiency-minded, maximize-our-profits mindset. That being said, there is an inevitable clash that occurs when those two cultures come together. The way of doing business that has built the success of the acquired business in the past is no longer acceptable to the new ownership. And yet many times it was that way of doing business that had built them a loyal customer base and clientele. Therefore, the return on investment for the acquiring company falls far short of what they anticipated when they (laughs) built their spreadsheets trying to justify why this was a good expenditure of money. Now, all organizational cultures fall into one of two categories. And here I'm using the classification system that is utilized by the Human Synergistics Organization, which developed the Organizational Culture Inventory, an instrument that has been used for decades in organizations all around the world. The Human Synergistics classification places all corporate cultures into either the constructive category or the defensive category. A constructive organizational culture is one in which you have a great deal of mutual respect, a tremendous amount of collaboration, a high positive energy level, very high levels of trust, extensive interaction between the various components of the organization. Everyone and every part of the organization pulls together to facilitate the greater strength and health of the overall organization and everyone within it. As opposed to that, there are defensive structures where the outlooks, the attitudes, and the atmosphere are considerably different. In defensive cultures, people work at odds with one another. There is more distrust than trust. Collaboration is pretty minimal. Decision-making may be a unchallenged top-down process. Within those defensive cultures, in fact, there are two subtypes. 
One are those which are aggressive defensive cultures. The other, those who are passive defensive cultures. In aggressive defensive cultures, there's a lot of finger pointing, a lot of blaming, a lot of scapegoating. It is often a very unpleasant atmosphere in which to work. Now, in passive defensive cultures, the working atmosphere may be a little bit more pleasant, but it is defensive nonetheless. Here, defensiveness takes the form of frequent excuse-making, missed critical deadlines, indifference toward those missed deadlines, disengagement, self-serving agendas, things that are not necessarily aggressive, but they are not constructive either. So as you look at your own organizational culture, does it appear to be more of a constructive culture or a defensive one? Or have you ever even really thought much about that? If not, it would be a worthwhile exercise to begin to just watch and listen to what's happening around you and determine whether what you are seeing and hearing really contributes to constructive outcomes or whether what you're seeing is defensiveness on display. We're going to be talking today about the building blocks of corporate culture. And this is true of all cultures, whether they're constructive or defensive. Corporate culture is the behavioral embodiment of what I call an orchestrating ideology. It's either written or unwritten, and it's what holds the culture together. Maybe you've never heard that term, orchestrating ideology, before. It's a term I use to describe that collection of concepts, ideas, values, and commitments which form the framework within which an organization makes decisions and operates. To give you some well-known examples on a larger scale, the U.S. Constitution is the orchestrating ideology of how this thing called the American experiment was to move forward. And over the centuries that we've been in existence as a nation, we continually go back to that document to find the guidelines, the navigational buoys, as you would, that we should stay within if we're to be true to that orchestrating ideology. Another and similar document is the UN Charter. Here some ideas and concepts were laid out to guide the interrelationship of nations around the world. And that orchestrating ideology should be the guiding set of principles on which all decisions and all actions are taken within that body. Now, there are many examples of companies that have had strong orchestrating ideologies. One of the most notable is what's called the Hewlett-Packard Way. When the two founders were first meeting to put their company together, before they ever decided what products they would sell, what industries they would target, they sat down and worked out what they called the Hewlett-Packard Way. Here's a brief summary of it. It's a much longer document, but this will give you the essence of it. First, we have trust and respect for individuals. That is, the individual is going to be valued and is going to be aware that they are valued in our organization, whatever it is that our organization undertakes. Second, we focus on a high level of achievement and contribution. In other words, we're expecting everyone to pitch in and make an appropriate contribution to the levels of achievement that 
we as the leaders will be holding the company to and holding ourselves to those standards. Third, we conduct our business with uncompromising integrity. We're going to be true to certain core principles that are our value system. Fourth, we achieve our common objectives through teamwork. Team building won't be just a slogan here. It will be the essence of how we get our work done. And fifth, we encourage flexibility and innovation. We're not going to be a rigid, bureaucratic organization. There's going to be a lot of improvisation and inventiveness that is part of the day-to-day life at Hewlett-Packard. In fact, out of this flexibility, they gave us one of today's modern practices. Businesses at the time HP came into existence was conducted in very formal attire, suits and ties for the most part. But because they were so small at first, they took orders the first four days of the week And then on Friday, they shipped all the orders they had. They didn't have the staff for a permanent warehouse team. Therefore, everyone pitched in on Fridays to help with shipping. Thus, on Fridays, you were allowed to wear casual attire, not business attire, because of the work you would be doing. And thus began the practice that would one day be nationwide of what's called casual Fridays. And of course, other companies have now gone to a point where every day is a casual one. There are the guiding principles. This was their orchestrating ideology that defined who they were and continued for decades to be the orchestrating focus of how they do things and how they take on new initiatives. Now, there are two types of orchestrating ideologies. Some are explicit. That is, they are an ideology which the organization has purposefully defined and clearly stated. Others are implicit. They are the ideology which accepted behavior in the organization seems to imply. Until organizations enunciate an orchestrating ideology, they have only an implicit one. So again, I ask, has your organization really explicitly stated its orchestrating ideology? We will be talking later about what would go into that. But the question needs to be in your mind as we go forward. To what degree is our orchestrating ideology explicit, or to what degree is it only implicit? Management's cultural priority is first to make the organization's orchestrating ideology explicit, and second, to keep explicit and implicit orchestrating ideologies closely aligned. When the two ideologies depart markedly from one another, organizations become dysfunctional. Now, there's some basic realities about orchestrating ideologies. First, they cannot be imposed. They establish themselves only through collective consent. In the absence of a defined ideology, a de facto ideology will always arise, The result will be a de facto culture. Over time, de facto ideologies tend to foster defensive cultures rather than constructive ones. There are a variety of reasons why this happens. We don't have time to go into all of them today. But fundamentally, unless the orchestrating ideology has been carefully spelled out, clearly articulated, widely communicated, and thoroughly reinforced, 
it's difficult to hold people accountable for things that would make for a constructive culture. As a result, human nature being what it is, sloppy practices set in, attitudes degenerate, values are not carefully adhered to, and before long, we are moving toward dysfunction. The elements of an orchestrating ideology are about eight in number. I'm not saying that all of these should be present or must be present, but a thorough orchestrating ideology will address most, if not all, of these eight considerations. First of all, the orchestrating ideology should identify our higher cause, that overall and ultimate quest that we have as an organization. Let me give you an example of that. One of my earliest clients when I began the firm was a mortgage banking company. The man who had started that company and was still the majority owner had a concept of being a mortgage banker that was rather unusual. He felt personally in his own core value system that one of our responsibilities simply as human beings is to make the world we are in a better place, and that means making the communities we are in a better place. He further believed that nothing made communities stronger than healthy families, and nothing added to the health and well-being of a family more than a secure place to live that was affordable and one that they were not in danger of losing if the economy simply softened or went south. Therefore, to him, closing a mortgage was the fulfillment of his higher cause, which was to build a healthy community. It was almost a theological view of what he was doing in the most mundane of things, which was writing mortgages. Not all companies have identified a higher cause, but many of the most successful ones have done so. In the nonprofit world, the higher cause is often very explicitly spelled out. In fact, it's the very reason the organization exists. They therefore demonstrate how powerfully motivating a higher cause can be in bringing out the best in those that you want to commit to what your organization is about. Second, an orchestrating ideology should state our identity. Who are we? And this is more than just a branding exercise. This is more than just naming who we are. It is describing the essence of who we are as a company. It's the way you want everyone in the organization to think of the company in distinction from all the other companies with which they're familiar. And you want your customers, your clients, and the public to think of you in terms of this identity as well. So when you think of a company like Southwest Airlines, a distinct culture and a distinct identity that sets them apart from everyone else in the airline industry, which then leads us to our third consideration. An orchestrating ideology should also spell out our uniqueness. What distinguishes us from our competitors? In the case of Southwest, it was their pioneering work in discount airfares. And they still run their operations, even down to the way that people are boarded on their planes, differently from other companies in their industry. They have a very clear sense in their orchestrating ideology of how they are unique. Next, an orchestrating ideology must identify the values. What drives us? What's really important to us? 
What determines whether we feel we are operating in an ethical manner, in an appropriate manner, in a humanitarian manner? What are our values? Next, an orchestrating ideology needs to identify our beliefs. Beliefs in this case are our rationale for putting priority on the values that we've espoused. What do we believe about those values? How do we believe that pursuing those values achieves those greater aims that define who we are and what we're about? Values, indeed, are even more critical for defining our culture than our vision. Our vision will shape the direction that our culture goes, but values, those that we advance, that we espouse, that we adhere to, that we live by, will determine our culture. From these beliefs about our values, then, come the principles, which are also part of our orchestrating ideology. Principles are how we express our beliefs in action. Because we believe this, this is what we do on a daily basis as an expression of or an extension of that belief. And, of course, the principles that flow from our beliefs can be endless because everything we do in the course of our daily work is based on some principle. So I'm not talking about an exhaustive catalog here. But what are the primary principles that we want to define and circumscribe our culture. Only when we've done these things do we come to something that most people would put earlier in the list, and that is our vision, our long-term aspiration. The reason I put vision in this place is that vision must align with our identity, our values, our beliefs, our principles. Otherwise, the vision will be pushing us in one direction Our identity, values, and beliefs will be pushing us in another direction, and we won't really have full alignment within our culture. Vision must fall within the parameters of these other aspects of our orchestrating ideology. And then with that vision in place, we come to the final element of our orchestrating ideology, which is our mission. And I define our mission as how we currently pursue this longer-range aspiration that we call our vision. Just as the vision must align with our beliefs, our values, our principles, so too must the mission. And of course it will if it is genuinely an extension of how we currently pursue the aspiration that constitutes our vision. So I hope these guidelines have been helpful to you, and that in the course of outlining them, I've triggered some thought on your part about where you could be more proactive in developing the kind of culture that you want within your organization. There are ultimately, as I said at the outset, one of two choices leaders have to make, whether they will purposefully promote a desired culture or whether they will passively sanction a de facto culture. If you take nothing else away from today's podcast, take away the realization that as a leader, You are a cultural change agent. You are either promoting a culture that will be healthy, productive, enduring, or by passivity, you're allowing the culture to go its own way, and who knows what that future may be. Again, thank you for joining us today on Upsize Your Leadership. I look forward to our next visit. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.